0: Samaritan and Build Your House Upon the Rock are stories that present divine morals for daily living. Join us as we discover God's truth through the stories in Luke. Hey, we're in this series, The Moral of the Story, and uh, this is a, a look at some of the major parables in the Gospel of Luke. So if you haven't been present for some of this series and you'd like to catch up, you can go to the website or Facebook and, and catch up with uh, where we have been thus far. Um, love makes a difference, doesn't it? Amen. I mean, when you're loved by somebody, it makes a difference. When you're hated by somebody, you know, quit the hating. When you're hated by somebody, it's awful, but love makes a difference. This uh, uh, picture is uh, from a storage room in the back of the uh, other part of the building, and these are supplies for the backpack program, and so last year and this year, we're continuing this program is where uh, supplies are bagged up by a team, and then they're taken to Chatham Elementary School, and uh, they're given to children who are in need for food uh, over the weekend, now, I had uh, Fred uh, came up and grabbed my arm, and he says, "Hey, I got to tell you the story. I was dropping some of these bags off uh, at the school, and one of the uh, faculty members came up and just thanked him profusely about uh, providing uh, the these 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 gifts uh, to these children. And then, uh, not too many days after that, he came and told me about uh, somebody had recognized him." Uh, and dropping those off and uh, met him in his front yard and was just thanking him again. And so uh, sometimes uh, you don't think that you're doing very much, but you are. Uh, you're doing quite more than you even thought about. You see, if, you, uh, if somebody looks at you and they're trying to find Jesus, they may not find all of Jesus when they look at you, right? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, I, I've looked in the mirror too, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not everything I need to be. But when I come into this room and I'm with you beautiful people, collectively, as a community, as a group, we present Jesus. So if you're trying to find Jesus and what you know, I want to see somebody act, talk like Jesus, just get us all together on our best day and we'll we'll present Jesus to you. But what I'm saying is like this this action of this community is presenting the love of Christ to other people. And so we are in a uh, three-year strategy here of trying to develop ways to do exactly what I've just talked about, elevate the compassion of Jesus. Now, this preaching time is the other side of this initiative, and that is to deepen your spiritual walk with the Lord. And that's why, you know, we're going through the the sermons, that's why we have small groups, that's why we have opportunities for you to engage in deeper uh, uh, study of the Bible. But uh, we're trying to elevate the compassion of Jesus. So if you have an idea, if you have a suggestion, then bring it to us. You know, just write it on the Connect card and, 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 or, or talk to one of the staff members, myself or somebody. Say, hey, I have this idea. I know where we might be able to do something. We would love to introduce more people to Jesus by loving them, by being good neighbors. Now, uh, here's a new word for you, for us. Gospel Neighboring. Uh, it means meeting the real needs of people around you, whether they believe like you or not, with such a sacrifice that people want to hear the gospel and and so so what we 're trying to do is not just be neighbors but be gospel neighbors by 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 going above and beyond in actions of love that open people's hearts to hear the words and the message uh, of jesus right and, and so we we want others to know about this and so I've lived in different parts of the United States, and I've lived in different parts of the world. And I can tell you that these are some of the best neighbors in, in these parts, right, in these parts that I've ever been around. I mean, I see so many actions of love. It's unreal. Uh, and, and the way people uh, surround other people, it's just a great place to be. But gospel neighboring, it goes above and beyond that. It, it, is, it is helping those who you wouldn't normally help. Now, I have... Uh, I have some interesting neighbors that live right beside me and across from me and around me, right? And the problem is, I can't tell you all these cool stories about how strange they are because they go to church here. And, uh, you know, but I'm just telling you, man, it is cool when you're loved by your neighbors. Well, we came back from vacation one time, and one of our neighbors, uh, uh, I, won't tell, I won't give you his initials, but his name is Todd Hogan, uh, he... <laughs> He took his lawnmower, I don't know how he did this, but he cut Jesus into my grass. Like, I didn't mow the rest of it, just mowed Jesus, right? And like, I'm standing on my front porch, and I was like, what is that? J-E-S-U, I know it's not bad, it's quite talented, right? And so, you know, and I could tell you a whole host of other stories, but, and they could probably tell you a few on me, but, uh, but anyway, I'm just telling you, it's, it is so good to be loved by people who are close by. And so this gospel neighboring is we're trying to we're trying to get people not not just to attend church, but really to hear the gospel. We want them to ask, why are you doing these actions of love? Because we want them to know. Now, gospel neighboring is found throughout uh, the words of Jesus. Uh, He talks about living a different way because here's what I want you to know. You need to remember this. It's not a big crafty statement, but it's one that's important. Jesus explains the kingdom of God through parables. So if you're new to church and you're new to all this church jargon, parables is a form of teaching. It's uh, The word parable could be described as, as taking an earthly story and attaching a heavenly meaning to it. Uh, the word para means to cast alongside, and so uh, we, we cast alongside an earthly story and a heavenly truth, and, and they become memorable moments. But Jesus talks about his kingdom through parables. Now, the number one topic that Jesus loves to talk about is his kingdom. He talks about it in every time, uh, in all the gospels. Uh, if, if you want to say, what's the one thing Jesus talked the most about? He would say the kingdom. Jesus doesn't talk a lot about going to heaven. I know Christians talk a lot about going to heaven. But if we would talk like Jesus would talks in, in, in subject matter, we would talk more about the kingdom being established here on this earth than any other thing. Because that's what Jesus did. He talks about the kingdom. He teaches about the kingdom. He shows actions of love that demonstrate the kingdom is here. Because there's a kingdom of darkness that exists on the earth. And when Jesus comes, he's bringing light and is exposing the darkness, but he's also establishing a new way to be human. And that is to be redeemed by Jesus. And so, Parables are these memorable stories that help people better understand that there's a there's a new sheriff in town. There's, a, there's this new kingdom. And, and, and so uh, the old is going away and the new has come. Now, there's an expert in the law that we're going to talk about in our scripture today. And he knows all about the law. But what he doesn't understand is this kingdom that Jesus is establishing. So we're going to read about him uh, in Luke 10 beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this. And you will live. Now, Jesus responds to this guy's first question brilliantly. Uh, Jesus is saying that the law outlines the right way to live. And if you do that, God will accept you. Now, here's the catch because there's a catch. You have to obey the law perfectly from the beginning of your life to the end of the life. You can't ever make a mistake, you can't ever get it wrong, you can't ever miss a beat. You miss a beat one time, you've broken the law, and you're worthy. judgment. And so, this guy, this expert in the law, is approaching life in an old kingdom manner. He's approaching life by, like, if I do good enough, God will accept me. So, he's going to ask another question, right? And Jesus is going to give a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, before we get there, I just want to say this, that I've met a lot of people ...who know the term Good Samaritan. It's a law on our books, is it not? I mean, there's a Good Samaritan law to help people in distress. Unless, it, unless you risk your life, you're to help people. It's, it's our law, right? We live by it here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. But there are a lot of people that don't know the story behind it. They don't know the parable behind it. Therefore, there's all kinds of assumptions that we make. And like this guy, some of these assumptions can uh, really be oppressive. Thinking that you have to live your life perfectly all the time. So uh, Jesus is helping this scholar realize the error of his thinking, and, and, and so uh, he, he wanted to justify himself, Luke says, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so this expert in the law is like, hey, let's be reasonable here. I mean, to love every neighbor, everybody, I mean, how is that possible let's whittle this thing down so it's doable for people like well that guy over there but really he's thinking about himself because he's trying to justify his own lifestyle which he knows doesn't measure up to all the parts of the law and so uh god it will accept him in his mind god will accept him if he's virtuous enough if he's good people we use that expression don't we in these parts right good people they're good people that's not a bad expression the only problem is it it's not a biblical expression Jesus, yep, Jesus says there's nobody good but God. That's what Jesus said. I I, I use that, I'm not saying it's wrong to say that they're good people, but what I am saying is this, that if we want to be accepted by God, we got to be good all the time and never get it wrong. And so this guy's wanting to justify himself, he's like, what's the minimum? At least tell me the minimum so like I can get above that. What do I have to do so I don't have to burn, right? This is where this guy is at. And so, uh, what's the minimum standard for salvation? So, Jesus gives him this story, this parable, to help him understand something. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So, to a Levite, when he came, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. This is his revelation for us today. And what we're going to try to do is unpack it understand it and then let it transform the way we live. That's why we're here. We're trying to change our lifestyle in accordance to the footsteps of Jesus. Now, um, the lawyer has these questions too, actually, that reveal his confusion. And so Jesus answers his questions with questions and a parable to get him to think because Christianity is a thinking person's religion. And by that I mean... God does not want us to leave our intelligence out on the curb and come in here and just be programmed like robots. He wants us to think through that his way of living is superior to ours and that we need outside help to be the people that, like Jesus, to be the people that he's called us to be. And so the first question the guy says, hey, what do I got to do to have eternal life? And, uh, and Jesus says, well, what's the law saying? He, he quotes the Shema. Now, that's a Hebrew term meaning uh, a, a condensing of the entire law, right? It's, it's an expression that, that, that was very common among the uh, Jewish people of that day. And so then there's another question that follows. He, he says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the story and asks him a second question. So there's a series of questions and stories here. Now, this Shema, it comes from uh, two passages in the Old Testament. So if you're new to the Bible... Uh, We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Testament means the word covenant. And so um, there's this old covenant that the Jewish people lived under, and there's a new covenant that we live under. And so in the Old Testament, there's a series of law. Actually, there's 565 mitzvahs or laws that comprise uh, this old covenant. And you got to obey them all. You know, the average person in America breaks like, I think it's like 30 laws every day, like if you you speed, if you don't stop completely, there's a stop sign, you know, all that stuff. I know you you don't do this, but I do this, like sometimes I'm on Amazon and I'm not paying tax on what I'm buying, you know, boom, I'm breaking a law. I mean, I'm just saying that there's a lot of laws and these people are living under this body of laws. And so what they did was instead of trying to tell everyone every law, they came up with a summary statement. And so the first part, Deuteronomy 6 5, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all through your strength, summarizes the first four of the Ten Commandments because the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about God. And the last six are all about your relationship with others. So love your neighbor as yourself. And so this was the summary of this. Now, summaries are good. We love summaries, don't we? Just give me the bottom line. Give me the summary statement. I don't want to read the whole book. Can you give me the condensed, you know, version of this? What's the cliff notes say? We love stuff like that, right? The only problem with summaries and that kind of thing is, and if you've ever tried to study for an exam on a piece of literature and studied cliff notes, there would be that question. You're like, you have no idea because you didn't read the book, right? And so you don't know. There's some details that are left out of summaries. Now, this expert of the law hasn't, hasn't missed it. And so there's this part in Leviticus 19, it's called verse 34. This is what they teach in Bible college. Verse 34 comes after 18, somewhere down the line. And so it says, a foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as you love yourself. Ouch. This guy knows. He's not getting it right. Because he's an expert. Of the law. You know what an expert is, right? It's a drip under pressure. All right, some of you get that one way home. But <laughs> come on. Come on. yes, Clow, There you go. All right. Whatever. Uh, I liked it. I thought it was good. But Jesus knows this guy's trying to justify himself. So you can imagine what's going on in his mind. He's like, man, I'm not keeping up with all of the law. And so uh, this... Jesus tells this story about a good Samaritan. Now, the background of the parable is important because sometimes I think Jesus creates parables with fictional stories, stories of common occurrences, you know, a sower went out to sow, you know, like that's a common occurrence. But in this case, in this parable, I think he's telling a real story. I think it's a nonfiction story that Jesus is attaching a heavenly meaning to. And I also believe, this isn't in the Bible, but I believe, because of the context, I believe the Levite and the priest are in the crowd. And they're trying to crawl under whatever they can crawl. It's convicting them. You know, it's bad. And so, anyway, there's some background of our parable that's important. This is a picture of that 17-mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a windy road through mountainous terrain. It's, it's mostly downhill. It's actually 3,500 feet from Jerusalem down to Jericho Elevation. I mean, it's, it's a drop. And there are, there are these places where people can hide. And it was a common occurrence for people to be walking that road alone and, be, uh, uh, and have bandits rob them and, and hurt them. And so mostly rugged terrain, a dangerous you know, area. And, and here's another detail of this story. This man was stripped naked. Now... Why is that important to think about? Well, in that day and time, what you wore identified you with a certain people group. So if you're a part of this people group, you have this type of clothing. If you're part of this part of society, if you're one of the... There are three classes of society. Uh, there's the ruling class, there's the business class, and then there's everybody else in that day and time of the Roman Empire. And if you were in one of these upper classes, you definitely had clothing that identified you as somebody important or special or wealthy or whatever. Or a Jew or non-Jew. I mean, your clothing identified you. It's not much different than high school today. Like, I don't know if we still have goths in high school, but when, you know, when I was in school, there were the, the people that were like black and chains and, you know, that kind of thing. And then, then there was my group. You know, we were the hard rockers. You know, Led Zeppelin T-shirt, Levi jeans, white leather Nike shoes, we, we know who you were, you were in our crowd, you know, we knew you were cool, everybody else was totally uncool, because, you know, they didn't have on Led Zeppelin t-shirt, Levi jeans, and white Nike t- uh, sneaker, anyway, and then there's that preppy group, and I don't know what preppies, but I think you have alligators on the shirt, or something like that, you know, I don't know, <laughs> but you get it, I mean, oh, we have the new group, I, I didn't experience this, but here, we got the camo group, right? They got camo cars, camo hats, camo pants, camo underwear, camo... Everything's camo. And when these people walk in the room, you can't even see them because they just blend in, right? You get what I'm saying. I mean, you know the group they're associated with they're dressed, but this guys he's stripped naked. Yeah, and so we don't know who he is. We don't know who he is. And, and so uh, what I, one other thing about Levites and priests, They are people who serve the temple in Jerusalem. And so, if you're new to all this, there's this great big place of worship Herod built called the temple in Jerusalem. And the people who serve in the inner sanctum areas, the holy of holies, and the holy place in there, they are special people. They come from a certain family line. And so there were 24 courses of priests. There were thousands of priests and Levites during that period of time. And when it was your week to serve, you had to go through a purification process. And then you served in the temple. But most of these people did not live in Jerusalem. They lived in outlying towns. And so they, they were an agricultural people, a lot of them. And they had farm chores at home. And so they had, they had things to get to. Plus, they've had to go through this ritual cleaning. And so if they touch this dead person or nearly dead person who's naked, they're unclean. Now, becoming unclean is not necessarily a sin, but getting clean again to serve in the temple is a process. I mean, you got to schedule an appointment. You got to sit in the waiting room. You got to read some old magazine and wait for them to call your name before you get to go be clean again, right? And go through the process. And they don't want to go through all that. And so what I'm saying is like, well, here's the point. They could justify withholding love. Withholding an act of love is easy to justify. I mean, help with this guy, slowing down, the bandits may still be there. This may cost me. I've got a family at home. I'm the breadwinner. I, I, I mean, I can't stop. This may cost me something, some time, some money. As a matter of fact, when I begin to pick up this person, I now am responsible For his welfare, and then uh, they're busy. You know what? I don't have time. It's not my problem. You know this guy, this guy. You know maybe he deserved it because you know they're already prejudiced against Jews, right? Bad things happen to bad people, right? That's the way some people think. They deserved it. You know he was probably had his stone tablet out last night and was looking at porn, right? He probably deserved that, right? Some of you got that. (laughs) You can. It's a rough crowd today it's sunny in here. It's cloudy out there. It's sunny. All right. But, and then here's where I think the real core issue is the dehumanization of another person. And I think this is the, this is the core thing. This is, where, this is where a lot of these other things find, find their roots. Denying a person of their God given identity is, is one definition of dehumanization. Okay. So, so he did not see another human. He saw a problem. I mean, talk about the priest and the Levite. They didn't see another human. They saw a problem. They saw, they saw something that would cost them. They something that they might be risk taking, you know. And so this dehumanization of, of people is a huge problem throughout our world history. Huge problem. Even in our own country. There were Christians and non-Christians who demonized. I mean, he dehumanized a group of people and made them slaves. And the churches, they were part of the problem. They said, oh, that group has the mark of Cain, so they're subhuman. Do what you want with them. We move on a little bit later in history, during uh, uh, European history. And in Germany, there were Christians and non-Christians who dehumanized a group of people called the Jews and the gypsies and anyone else who had a deformity or speech impediment or wasn't, didn't look like the Aryan race. And, and they said that was okay. There, there's this terrible story about a church that was located near the railway that uh, Jews were loaded up on boxcars, and those boxcars would go behind the church on Sunday sometimes, and they would be screaming because they knew they were headed to Dachau, one of the death camps. And so the church was meeting inside, the Lutheran church meeting inside there. So you know what they did? They just sang louder so they didn't have to hear the screams. There were a couple of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer that stood up and tried to be the conscious of the state, but sometimes the church has to do that. There's another time in history that we were actually uh, got to see firsthand in Rwanda where back in 1997... And then even some years prior to that, there was this one group of people that were called Hutus, who didn't like the Tutsis, another people group. And so they decided to slaughter them. And within about two weeks, they killed almost a million people with machetes. Now, here's the interesting thing. Ninety-eight percent of Rwanda calls themselves Christian. And I stood beside those uh, glass tombs where the bones are stored so they don't forget, so nobody forgets what happened. And one of the preachers there standing beside me was Frank. And with tears in his eyes, he said to us as Americans, he said, why didn't you come? We did nothing. America did nothing. And now, we dehumanize another group of people, those who have not yet exited the womb, And since a terrible legal, it was, Roe versus Wade, 1973, that was terrible. Legally, that was was an atrocity. I mean, it never should have happened. But it happened because of social pressure or something or just the devil himself. I don't know. But since 1973, listen, you might want to write this number down and help me pray for about, with this, uh, 60 uh, million, 69,971 humans have been exterminated since 1973 in our country. So America, we've surpassed Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, and Rwanda. Does anybody know the name Theodore Geisel? Somebody in first service knew who I was talking about. Yes. Who said that? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. That's our second winner. We've had two chicken dinners given out today. <laughs> Theodore De Geisel, his pen name, Dr. Seuss. So, in his patriotism during uh, World War II, uh, he was, a, you know, he was a sketch artist, obviously, and so uh, he made these really demeaning, dehumanizing characters of uh, of Japanese people for the war effort to inspire people to give bonds or whatever, you know, uh, uh, ramp up the. the 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 call for for going against the, this evil empire, and they were an evil empire, but these characters were, were dehumanizing. Well, after the war, he goes to Japan, and while he's there, he meets survivors in Nagasaki, he meets other Japanese people, and his heart is broken, because they're humans just like him, suffering things just like him. And so uh, he repents inside of himself, and the only way he could seek some... Sense of like uh, remorse and, forgi- uh, and, and seeking forgiveness was he wrote this book, Horton, Here's a Who. My mom used to read me this book before I went to bed. I didn't know what it meant until research for this sermon. But there's a very, 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 very famous phrase in this book that is his appeal to people to not dehumanize others, and it's this person is a person. No matter how small, a person is a person, no matter how small. Life begins at conception. And so here we are. I think the sin of our time is abortion. And this is not a time to beat up on people who participated in that or went through abortion. Because some people that I dearly love have been through abortions. So this is not a time to make people feel bad about things that they've done because it was legal, but making you know, it, it may be legal, but it doesn't make it right. You know, smoking's legal, but come on. It's not good for you. I mean, there's a lot of things that are legal, but it doesn't make them right. So while it might might be legal, it it, it devastates people's lives. So this isn't a time to beat up on people because... We need to minister to those people, share them that that the violence that was done to them at the hands of a doctor and nurse against them and their child and the psychological damage, which is untold in a lot of people's lives, and the grief and the guilt that goes along with all that heinous act against those young women, they need ministered to. They need love. And and next month is October. That's our, our baby bottle boomerang where we raise funds for... Uh, Martinsville uh, Life Life Planning Center or their crisis pregnancy center, okay, and so you're going to get a bottle and you throw it and it comes back to you, right? Because the boomerang bottle, and when it comes back to you, grab it and fill it up with thousand dollar bills, right? And so anyway, or something, uh, but what I'm saying is that that we're trying to help these people because they need help. You know, these young mothers and fathers need help, and so this isn't a time to beat up on anybody. But what I'm trying to say is. It is easy to dehumanize another people group and, and to walk by. And I think if we're the church, at times there needs to be some civil disobedience against these heinous acts. Now, I'm not counting on the government or the courts to get it right. Are you? Here's what I'm, I'm hoping they do the best they can. But ultimately, it's going to be the gospel that changes Lies. Quick story. I don't have time to tell it all, but some of you are very familiar with Teen Challenge. One of our own went through Adult Teen Challenge. Phenomenal transformation. During the heroin epidemic that was in New York City in the late 60s and early 70s, before Giuliani, before they cleaned up Times Square and all that, they had this huge heroin problem. It was nasty. It was awful. A preacher from Pennsylvania in the country went there with his brother and they begin to make a difference. The government, the CDC, they, they tried to figure out how this, this uh, teen, teen challenge was making a difference where there was an 80% recovery rate of the addicts. They're like, how do you get 80% recovery rate of the addicts? Because we're only getting like less than 10. And so they interviewed, uh, they interviewed I, what's his name? I can't, it's, Wilkerson, thank you. It just flew out of my head, and now it's back in, thanks to you. And so, anyway, they said, what's the difference? And he said, it's the Jesus factor. Yeah, what the government can do, Jesus says, not a problem, not a problem. And so, what I'm, here's what I'm saying, like, every person has value. That preacher sitting in the, in, the, in, the, in the boondocks of Pennsylvania looked at the television channel and said, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And he did. And it's changed the face of the world. So, so anyway, uh, there's this guy, uh, Darling. He's, he's written this book, The Dignity Revolution. And it's about helping us recapture as Christians how important it is to, to, to the dignity of other people. And he says, God is calling all of us not just to see that people have dignity, but to act accordingly. Not just to know, but to do. And so... We have, we have the message, folks. Christians, we have this message of like everybody has meaning and purpose and value. No matter how small or how broken you think you are, God can do an amazing work in your life. All right, uh, Christians are the neighbors of all humanity. If we call ourselves Christians, our neighbors, is, it's the rest of the world, folks. It's the rest of the world. Jesus uses these parables to explain that a new kingdom has come. And this Samaritan, he incurred the risk, right? He helped this guy, even though he might have been hurt himself. He made time and took immediate action. He chose to love his enemy rather than reject them. He saw the naked and dying body as a human worth saving. He, he did what the other people didn't do. And then when he takes those two denarii, two silver coins, and he hands them to the innkeeper where he, where he, he gives this man to be cared for, uh, and he said, make sure that the costs are covered. He's redeeming him. What do I mean by that? Well, you see, in that day and time, in that day and time, if, if, if you uh, had an individual you were caring for, and at the end of their, you know, their recovery, they had a doctor bill to pay and a, and a room stay to pay, uh, if they couldn't pay it, you sold them as a slave. It was common. It wasn't a big deal, like it was a big deal, but it wasn't the big deal. Uh, they, they, they were sold as an indentured servant until they could pay off their debt. There's, there's no social programs to catch people. I mean, you either paid it or you didn't. If you didn't, you went to work for somebody else until you could pay it all off. So this, this Samaritan covers the cost and says he's, he's not going to become a slave, which everybody in the crowd Jesus is talking about would have thought that. Like, but this guy goes above and beyond. Now, the question remains, what kind of guy does that? Jesus is that kind of guy. He's the Samaritan. He's the one. And, 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 and so, 1 John, another John 3, 16. 1 John, this is how we know what love is. You want to know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's what love is. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with word or speech, but with actions and truth. Yeah. Just like that. This expert of the law knows he's failed miserably. And if you've been listening, we have too, haven't we? We've not been the good neighbor. We, we've, we've missed it. And that's the point. The point is that Jesus doesn't. And so we come into the presence of the Father not because we've got it all right, but because Jesus has done it right every time. And that's the gospel message. So if you don't know what the gospel is, here it is. Your unrighteousness has to be met with judgment. Jesus goes on the cross and he incurs that unrighteousness of your actions and he suffers the penalty that you deserve and then in response to your belief and faith and trust and obedience to him, he gives you his perfect life. And so then you stand before the Lord God and you say, I have accepted the righteousness of Jesus and God the Father says, not guilty. That's the gospel in a nutshell, all right? The death, the burial, the resurrection, how it makes a difference in our lives. So Jesus is the one, right? Jesus is the one who does this. Now, salvation does not come through keeping the law because we fail at it, but through Jesus Christ. And his example compels us to anyone in need. So we're not motivated by guilt. We're not motivated by fear. We're motivated by love, the perfect motivator we want to do and to help because we have been helped and loved on and, and like when we were broken and bleeding and you're like i'm not yeah, I'm, <laughs> i don't know what you i'm not broke yes you are the problem is you haven't admitted it yet we're so broken sometimes you know we really and so when we're broken and bleeding jesus comes along and says i'll heal your brokenness and i'll redeem the cost the redeem the two denarii i'll redeem you i'll pay so that you don't wind up in slavery. And so Jesus is that one. Now, if we have to come up with a moral of the story, here it is, best as I can craft it. Love Jesus, the Samaritan, then love others as he has loved you. So I have two questions as we wrap this thing up. One, do you love Jesus? Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Do you love Jesus? Do you dearly, I mean, do you cherish him? Archbishop Canterbury or something. said, what you do with your idle time in your mind determines who your God is. What you do with your idle time determines who your God is. So, so in that idleness, are you thinking about, meditating about, are, are, you, are you like kingdom-minded? I mean, you're not maybe always thinking about Jesus and God, but you're thinking about things that relate to that. Or are, are we just drawn to something else? Like, is Jesus just something we put, check the box Sunday? It's, you know, this, I got it. Check, check. Or is he just like part of like our world? Right? Do you love Jesus? And the second question is, can we love like that? No. We can't. Not on our own. But as a community like those backpacks, as a community, like that work camp, as a community, like that offering going to Ides, as a community, we can love like that. Together, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we actually can love like that. I got good news. We can be like Jesus as we lock arms together and serve Him and walk with Him and try to like encourage one another and participate. Yeah, we can do that. We can. And so it's not all up to you as an individual. It's not all up to... It's, it's, it's together with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity uh, just to walk through this uh, parable. I really do not feel like I have brought it justice, but I am counting on the Holy Spirit to give increase to the reading of God's Word And I'm praying, Father, that you would change hearts and that you would heal hearts and that you would motivate us to love as you have loved so that we as believers can be that good Samaritan to a broken and dying world, laying naked on the side of the road. Lord, help us to be that person that you were to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.